and welcome to episode 3 of For a Quiet Moment. I'm your host, Nico Callaghan. I wrote this piece several weeks ago after reflecting upon the widespread economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic and its effect on various facets of the music industry. However, significant events have transpired in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. Among many others, I've noted that the response from influential corporate-aligned and corporate-adjacent music organisations that, in their own words, are built on the backs of black musicians has been extraordinarily disappointing. Alongside actions I have taken with friends in solidarity with those who are dealing with upheaval and repression in their communities, I'd like to think of this piece as a reflective suggestion for those who are not immediately affected by the upheaval. Today's episode is titled, When an Economy Breaks Down, How Much Is a Song Worth? It will begin in a moment. I hope you enjoy listening to For a Quiet Moment. A month ago, a friend forwarded me an email. He runs an independent record label that releases eclectic electronic music, including some of my own. We both do our things on a small scale, but after years of dedicated work, we're lucky enough to be part of a network that enjoys a niche, but generous, local and international audience. A proposal had been put to him, a proposal that concerned me too. The email is from a music supervisor, someone who brokers deals between copyright owners, like my friend the label manager, and companies or brands seeking music for their content. Akin to talent scouts, they find music to fit commercial applications, films, TV shows, or advertisements, then license the music rights from the copyright holder. A synchronisation or sync, can result in iconic pairings and yield valuable returns for artists. Think Jose Gonzalez, whose cover of The Knife's Heartbeats, synced in that Sony Bravia advertisement, catapulted him to global prominence. The supervisor who contacted us made a vogue overture towards acquiring the exclusive right to license music released on my friend's label including two albums of my music, ostensibly buying it to add to a professional library. To get some context of who we were dealing with, I looked through the supervisor's clients. Wells Fargo, Nike, Fox. Working with these corporations, I imagined the music supervisor's agency may not share my worldview. I wouldn't consider turning over the rights to my music to companies like that. But others would. 
The landscape of the music industry is ever-changing, and on top of this, radical economic instability has shaken the globe astonishingly quickly. When there is compounding pressure, and times are tough, I can understand why musicians, particularly those who have lost other work, would readily engage with this supervisor's world, as much out of possibility as necessity. I found myself wondering, why wouldn't I? I don't advocate for musicians to shut out the prospect of directly working with corporate interests or through an intermediary. If you can make a living in the music industry on your own terms, I think you should. And critics of what has been crudely deemed selling out must admit that there are practical considerations behind what musicians do with their music and why. There is, after all, money to be made within the music industry. And this may seem a counterintuitive assertion, given we exist in a post-Napster world where no one pays for music anymore. File sharing presented such an existential threat to major labels in their recorded music revenue that the period between 2000 and 2015 was labelled the Valley of Death. And for good reason global music sales fell by 40%. But of course, a saviour of sorts arrived. Spotify. For major labels, and to be fair, some independents, the loss has been tempered by streaming. The International Federation of the Phonographic Industry, or IFPI, which tracks and records the annual sales of music worldwide, reported that in 2019, total revenues climbed to 20.2 billion US dollars. And according to the IFPI's figures, streaming via platforms like Spotify contributed 56% of those sales. And this brought the music industry's gross revenue back to a level it hasn't seen since 2003. And while other players have entered the broader streaming game with mixed results, look at the recent rollout of Quibi, these platforms are now the norm. To most people, if something isn't on Spotify, it doesn't exist. And the enablers of this cultural realignment, tank companies and investment firms, stand to make billions as active players in the process, too. And their power and influence will only increase if they make the right moves. Musicians who wish to be a part of the standard music marketplace will have no choice but to acquiesce. And this is concerning when it is these corporations alone setting the parameters. Can disruption coordinated from the top ever be equitable? Writing for the New Statesman, Andrew Harrison opines that data gestalts such as Facebook, Apple, Google, and its subsidiary YouTube would assimilate music as just another proxy in their battle for digital hegemony. The mechanisms of streaming itself is just another technological advancement. As a concept, it's almost utopian. 
But when these disruptive advancements are coordinated by tech giants with broader ambition, they radically change our fundamental relationship to music, and by extension, the economic realities of music. For a while, it looked like the restorative growth of the past several years was set to continue, barring unforeseen interruptions. In a 2019 interview with Forbes, Crispin Hunt of the prestigious Ivor's Academy posed that it is estimated the recorded music business will double in size within 10 years, driven primarily by the growth in streaming. And despite the global pandemic, one could assume that the figures for 2020 will push past what was anticipated as large parts of the world practice self-isolation or lockdown and people are consuming more. And not just music, sponsored, branded, synchronised content of other forms too. But a 2018 report from Citibank reveals that even though listeners in the United States are spending more money on music than ever before, only about 12% of the revenue generated actually returns to artists. Hunt himself echoes the concerns of artists and industry advocates who recognise how the notion of streaming fixing the music industry's money troubles is sketchy, saying the majority of the streaming revenue is received and generated by fewer and fewer artists. Streaming only generates reasonable income for artists when they are streamed at scale, as the payout amounts to somewhere between 0.006 and 0.0084 US dollars per play. Legacy artists signed to major record labels who enjoy massive listener bases are overwhelmingly those that profit. As Neil Shah pointed out in a piece for the Wall Street Journal, music stars are the new one percenters. And income inequality in the music industry plays out most visibly in live performance revenue. IFPI figures reveal a disconcerting concentration of income. 70% of live revenue is now earned by 5% of acts. And of that, 70% of those artists had careers specific to the pre-iTunes era of CD dominance. It is increasingly harder for even seriously successful new artists to break into the financial class of these legacy artists. And for many musicians, disappearing income obligated by streaming was tacitly accepted as a trade-off for reaching larger potential audiences via social media. And in many cases, by redirecting energy towards viable revenue from live performance, enterprising artists have been able to make this work on their own terms. But how can live music function when the venues that it requires are unable to operate? That was taken away in a matter of hours, as health regulators, 
venue operators and performers came to terms, seemingly all at once, with the dangers of inviting hundreds or thousands of people into the same room, wrote Torquil Campbell of the band Stars in an op-ed for The Atlantic in March of this year. For musicians like me, Campbell added, the one reliable way of making a living, a live performance, had vanished, and we were left with nothing but fear and uncertainty. In some cases, concertgoers have been encouraged to forego a refund as a means of supporting artists, and donation-focused live streams have been set up to keep regularly gigging artists somewhat in work and generate financial relief for others. In some countries, flash grants from governments have allowed venues and cultural spaces to continue to pay their employees and expenses while they remain closed. But while these are welcome interventions to keep people afloat during this time, they are not sustainable. They are band-aid solutions to problems that were out of hand before this crisis. How are these workers, venue staff, sound engineers, security, performers, caterers, insulated from financial shocks that they have no ability to prevent? there is a flow-on effect too. Josh Bivens of the Economic Policy Institute concludes that under normal economic circumstances, every 100 jobs lost within the arts, entertainment and recreation industries results in 278.5 additional indirect jobs being lost, and this rate is substantially higher than the retail or administrative sectors within the United States. Those that wonder why musicians didn't get real jobs can't discredit the other night economy workers whose living partially depends on the viability of live music. And these kinds of imbalances and pitfalls are not new to the music industry. But what of emerging opportunities for some, like syncs? Comparing syncs with, say, streaming may give the impression that it is an unimportant part of the overall music market. Music syncs account for just 2.7% of the IFPI's 2019 figures, approximately 500 million US dollars. But for syncs, this kind of revenue-based thinking is only part of the picture. Take that Jose Gonzalez sync. Sony's advertising campaign broadcast Gonzalez directly into the homes of hundreds of millions of people around the world, and it's not a stretch to think that many of those viewers would have never encountered his music otherwise. And while his recording is part of the advertisement's success, the track's subsequent climb up global sales charts can be attributed to the reach of Sony's marketing department. It's true. The CDs and digital downloads that generated Gonzalez and the other rights holders, a large payday, are a thing of the past. And for every well-placed sink that results in a happy marriage between artist and company, there are bound to be flounders that lead nowhere. But the potential for musicians to reach people without ever having a live career per se becomes an enticing possibility, one both born out of and uniquely suited to the means and mediums of the present. 
but these means and methods of platform-based capitalism are still controlled by corporations who do not have any stake in ensuring the well-being of the artists they extract value from. People love music, but a tech company does not need to love music, nor care about people, to make money. For many musicians who directly contribute to the wealth of the music industry, the arrangement is something akin to a remote, unpaid internship, worked flexibly as an independent contractor. And currently, there is no way for the musicians on those platforms to influence or direct genuine energy from the public into a form that is sustainable. Sure, some musicians will likely do very well and reach more people than ever in this time, but that cannot be everyone. To avoid being lost in the ether, and to give themselves the best shot at weathering the broader economic fallout of this moment, musicians and those involved in the music industry may need to consider what they do. My friend and I politely declined the request from the music supervisor. We were only just figuring out exactly how to orient ourselves within the world of music before COVID-19 hit, and we don't have a recipe for success for coming out of this crisis. But situations like the one we find ourselves in tend to have a sobering levelling impact where priorities are reshaped, or perhaps more appropriately, rediscovered. The mutual aid provided to those who are in vulnerable states has been remarkable, and this must be recognised and then built upon. We cannot let that community-focused spirit dissipate if things go back to normal, because normal did not work before, and it won't in the future. Different systems outside of a corporate and streaming-centric music industry are essential, and they will only come about with collective effort. We want to be a part of broader efforts with others who feel the same. Music is not just about money, and money does not inherently poison music. But as the global music industry shifts to a new economic paradigm, the shift is increasingly coordinated by tech giants. If those who have an active stake in equitable economies of music do not adjust accordingly, It will become the domain solely of the rich, those rich from the creative labour of millions of musicians. And when they are dictating how much a song is worth, they will find a way to make someone else pay the price. Thank you for listening to this episode of For a Quiet Moment. Please take care, stay safe and help out those in need, if you can. Until the next time, I'm Nico Callaghan, and this has been For a Quiet Moment. <laughs>